You're listening to the Optimal Performance Podcast. The OPP is brought to you by Natural Stacks, makers of 100% natural and open source supplements designed to help you live optimal. For more information on how to build optimal mental and physical performance into your life, go to naturalstacks.com. Oh, what's up, everybody? Welcome back and happy new year to another episode of the Optimal Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Sean McCormick. You can find me on Instagram, real Sean McCormick, or on seanmccormick.com. In today's episode, I am so stoked. You know, there are guests that I have on from time to time who I've been a fan of for a very long time, and today's guest is no different. Rob Wolf is a juggernaut, and he has been an expert in the field of nutrition for a long time. He's a two-times New York Times bestselling author of The Paleo Solution and Wired to Eat, former research biochemist and one of the world's leading experts in paleolithic nutrition. As far as I'm concerned, Rob Wolf is one of the leading experts in nutrition on the planet, and he changed lots of people's lives by introducing and popularizing paleo, then becoming an expert on keto and also sort of weighing in from time to time on uh, carnivore. The things that Rob has been able to do in his life and what he's been able to shed light on are, are pretty groundbreaking. And for that reason, I was so stoked to have him. This is a really, really interesting conversation that I think you're gonna get a lot out of. For me, it's a super cool way to start the year because I mean, when it comes to optimal performance, especially within nutrition and exercise, Rob Wolf is at the cutting edge at all times. In this episode, we cover the importance of looking at critical metabolic shifts as indicator at larger health issues. We talk about metabolic syndrome. We talk about the importance of knowing lipoprotein count above and beyond the cholesterol counts. We talk about his sort of life transition, his shifts in uh, changing up the podcast. We talk about the book that he's working on and also a film that he's supporting called Sacred Cow that is in its post-production phase that really gets to the heart of what it is to live sustainably and eat sustainably. You know just as well as I do that there is a major debate going on between veganism and carnivore omnivore, what is the right food to eat, and how can we feed the planet? And Rob is ahead of the game, you know, talking about regenerative farming is another topic that we get to in the podcast. Um, we talk about sort of the the cultural implications, which I think is a, one of the more interesting parts of this conversation, um, the, the cultural implications of, of food and how we can feed each other, how we can grow food in a way that supports our ecosystem. We talk about spiritual virtue signaling and the implications that, uh, that some vegans make around it not being woke to eat meat. You know, meat is murder, that whole thing. Rob's take on it is is pretty interesting. And because he is so on the pulse of the conversations that are happening around food and diet and sustainable practices that uh, his take is really cool. Of course, I will link to all of this in the show notes, but we also talk about his podcast. If you haven't listened to his podcast, it has switched to the Healthy Rebellion radio. They have launched a different format where they take questions from people. They even do some live call-ins and get him and his wife, Nikki, um, their opinion on everyday questions that people have about nutrition, you know, uh, body odor, egg sensitivity, hyperbaric oxygen, metabolic flexibility, paleo MREs, tanning beds, strength and aerobic balance, just packed with cool information from the guy that you really want to be hearing all this stuff from. You know, this is uh, when I when I have guests like this, it gives me a moment to sort of reflect a little bit and think about this this really cool opportunity that I have to have incredible conversations that I think are so fascinating and sharing them with you. If you are a regular listener to this podcast, which I know that a lot of you are, please give us a quick five-star review on iTunes. It really does help a lot. And also subscribe. If you're, if you're listening to this on one player or another and you haven't subscribed to the show, please do that. I'm so stoked to bring this to you guys. Thank you so much for listening to another episode and happy 2020. Man, it's going to be a good year. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, Rob Wolf. You're listening to the Optimal Performance Podcast, and I'm your host, Sean McCormick. It's the OPP. I'm a performance coach, a wellness entrepreneur, 
a blogger, a speaker, a biohacker, and it's my privilege to bring to you the leading experts in the field of performance. So let's dig right in. Rob Wolf, welcome to the Optimal Performance Podcast. Hey, man, huge honor to be here. Thank you. So I like to start with the same question with every single one of my guests. Um, what time is it, where you are, and what have you put in your body? Oh, man. So it's 8.05 Central Time right now. And so far today, um, breakfast was actually what, what I call the the um, refrigerator cleanup. So we had two different sets of folks come over the last two nights for dinner. And so there was some leftovers from one meal, leftovers from another meal. And I'm kind of like the family dog. Like if I don't eat that, then nobody's going to eat it. And so it was a hodgepodge of bacon, salad, hamburgers, a a Thai flavored um, chicken dip, olives, and a piece of dark chocolate. And uh, so, yeah, like it, it, it was just basically like, yeah, it sounds like a, what you should actually throw in a garbage disposal. But um, that's what I had today. So like for the, you know, the nutrition expert, that's probably like the worst answer to any any meal <laughs> question that's, that's ever been asked. But yeah, that's it so far today. That's awesome. I love I love that on this on this morning at, you know, before eight o'clock, before jumping on this, you ate, you ate that. That's phenomenal. You're a dad. You're supposed to. I mean, again, you have to eat what everybody else isn't going to eat. Otherwise, it's waste wasted. Yeah, and I I just lose my mind when, it, it, particularly like just meat stuff. Like I I can't can't landfill it, and if the dog won't eat it or the cat won't eat it, then I do. So then dad gets it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, how about, uh, coffee or supplements or anything oh, like that? I, I, I did have a, a coffee, um, funny enough, our, our regular coffee maker broke this morning. And so I had to kind of jerry rig, uh, we, we have one of these induction cooktops, but it's the newfangled model and it only turns on if there's enough iron or steel above it to like trip this sensor. So I have a stovetop espresso maker that is stainless steel, but it's small. And so it's not big enough to trip the sensor. So I actually had to boil a pot of water and top espresso maker on there to be able to heat the water to cook the get the coffee cooked. And then I, I had some element electrolyte that I'm I'm working my way through. So yeah. Wow. Yeah. So I forgot about that. Yeah. What a what a morning it's been before before jumping on you, you really made it happen. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I go to bed early. I'm old. Like I'm in the, the complete blue hair uh, phase of my life already. So like I woke up at four 30 or something like that and started getting some work done. That, that is also the only time that it, so we started homeschooling this year and it is the only time that I'm not set upon by either my staff, my kids, the cat, the dog that needs something from me. So I end up getting this maybe two, two and a half hour window where I, I put on headphones. I listen to uh, kind of binaural beats, you know, thing to try to get in the zone. And man, I just try to get some shit done because otherwise it's not going to happen later. So yeah. Yeah. Wow. Do you, um, do you do your creative work or are you doing emails, kind of whatever's on your radar for that day? I, ideally early, it's the creative work. And I really do try to punt the um, the emails and everything. I've tried to relegate to uh, porcelain throne time and, and that's it. Like that's the only time I reply to emails and um, it's worked pretty well. Like I really have been getting better and better at partitioning my life. We've largely left social media also, which is kind of another, like, it's amazing how much more time I have. Like when you're not just like scrolling, 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 um, it was shocking how much time that freed up. And so, uh, uh, I, I tackle emails at kind of these off hours, like later in the day I can get stuff done, but it's definitely not my, um, kind of creative bandwidth and, and stuff like that. And so I'm working on uh, a my main talk for this year, which is longevity focused. And then we're also working on a blood work related course because folks will do dietary changes and their cholesterol levels or different biomarkers will change. And it, it, it's not entirely clear when 
these changes are a net win versus a, a net negative. And so I'm trying to provide some resources for helping people understand, okay, here's where you are. This is what has changed. If you don't like those changes, here's some things that we can do to try to modify those, those outcomes. Like some people that eat a lower carb diet, they see their total cholesterol go up and their lipoproteins go up. There are some really easy strategies that we can introduce, like shifting from saturated fat to monounsaturated fat, upping protein and carbs a bit, and usually the lipoproteins and cholesterol will drop. So there's a lot of cool things that can be done, but what we've found is when people go through the standard blood work battery, they're more confused at the end of it than what they were before, and and I'm trying to provide something that can undo that. Wow. Are you targeting the blood work guide, coaching, consulting uh, around folks who eat uh, paleo, keto, keto, carnivore? Is that is that sort of the aim of it or is it for everybody? The, well, that's definitely like the center of the bullseye. Like right. those are the people that I think are, are going to be most uh, uh, germane to this. But it, it's also the blood work that we recommend really does a great job of um, – Figuring out if you're heading into that metabolic syndrome, uh, pre-diabetic kind of uh, condition, folks look at, say, like fasting blood glucose and things like that. And blood glucose doesn't start going up until late in the disease process. It's when the body starts failing, the pancreas starts failing, that we actually see blood sugar levels going up. But with some advanced testing using this thing called the LPIR score, the lipoprotein insulin resistance score, um, you can see, I think that they, they have it verified for like a, a 10 year, like 95% uh, predictive value of your likelihood of developing, say like type two diabetes. And they're, they're getting it validated for things like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's also, because we're seeing some really subtle, but important metabolic shifts that happen very early in these disease processes. And the standard blood testing just does not find this stuff. And if you can get out in front of that, if we can see that somebody still has normal blood glucose levels, but they're heading into that insulin resistant metabolic syndrome state, then we, we can exercise better. We can figure out if the person needs to eat lower fat or lower carb to, to work for their genetics. If they are say like a, a shift worker and maybe the insulin resistance is an outcome of disordered sleep, then we can try to develop some strategies for addressing that. So it, it could be incredibly valuable for helping people get out in front of that that process. That's the name of the game, right? I mean, that's the that's the future of of practical medicine is to is to know exactly what's going on and make the changes ahead of time, right? <laughs> do you do you yeah, have yeah absolutely do, yeah? Do you have a do you have a preferred sort of blood testing, um, avenue? Do you like, do you like to use a specific lab or a specific service? So, so I'm on the board of directors of a lipidology clinic and we have always used LabCorp. LabCorp is the only outfit that has this LPIR score mm. and it, it's proprietary stuff. There are, are things kind of like it, but when, when people get their standard blood work, the, the main things they look at are like total cholesterol, HDL cholesterol, LDL cholesterol, and those things can kind of be helpful, but on, on any given day, the folks that succumb to a heart attack or a stroke, about 40 to 60% of those people have what would be considered low normal cholesterol. And the confusing thing is the, the cholesterol is a, a molecule that gets shuttled around the body inside of these things called lipoproteins. They're, they're basically these kind of water-soluble beach balls that put the fatty things on the inside, and then it has kind of a protein coat on the outside that allows it to go through circulation. And so you could have somebody, you could have two people, both of them with an LDL cholesterol of 100, but one person could have a lipoprotein number of 2,000, which would potentially not be good, or another person could have a lipoprotein count of 1000, which would be much better. And you could liken it to, um, car, uh, buses versus motorcycles. So, uh, you know, a motorcycle carries one passenger, which would be cholesterol. 
or a bus could carry a ton of passengers, which would be analogous to cholesterol. So the, these larger lipoprotein, the, 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 the less atherogenic lipoproteins tend to be big and, and carry a lot of triglycerides and cholesterol comparatively, whereas um, when people get into this uh, dyslipidemic um, metabolic syndrome state, their lipoproteins get smaller, they carry less stuff, so it requires more of them to carry the same amount of stuff around. And it, it, there's a lot of controversy around this, and I'm, I'm painting a little bit of an overly simplistic picture, but it, one could make the case that it's called a, a gradient-driven process. Like the more stuff there, the more likelihood there is of something going wrong. Got yeah. it. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. Oh, that's that's cool projects, man. So, so yeah, and, and the, the folks that we go through are called LabCorp. Uh, it's kind of LabCorp or Quest are the, the biggies. Um, Quest... Uh, looks at a similar uh, being, which is called the ApoB molecule, which is essentially the LDL particle, but it's it, it's kind of looked at differently, but it does not generate this uh, LPIR score. So it doesn't provide insight into what your, your kind of insulin resistance status is. A lot of people use the triglyceride to HDL ratio which it, it is interesting. It, it is suggestive of the beginnings of metabolic syndrome. But what we've found in our testing is uh, uh, maybe about 40 to 60 percent of people are missed who are insulin resistant. And that triglyceride HDL ratio is not disordered yet or it may never disorder. In metabolic syndrome, there are several different characteristics. Some of it's visceral adiposity, some of it is elevated blood pressure, some of it is dyslipidemia, some of it is elevated blood glucose. And some people can be quite sick and have three of these things, but not the fourth or two of them and, and not the other two. And so it, it's um, this is where it's important to look at a lot of different things and not rush to judgment when we, we only have, say, like one one data point. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think that I think I, I think especially for folks who are seeing sort of a standard of care doc and getting certain blood tests, they may they may not have the whole picture. Yeah, I can definitely see how that could be problematic. Um, so I have so many great questions, and I want to make sure that I get that at least touch on 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 each of them. Um, some of them are sort of meta, bigger bigger issues. But I want to start with the fact that you've got a lot of changes happening for you in your life. Um, you know, the the new podcast, the new book you're working on, the film. Can you tell us a little bit about the shift to uh, the Healthy Rebellion Radio? What what's to come in the book, and then also um, give us a little give give us a heads up on the film because because I th I think that I think that some sanity is really needed right now when it comes to nutrition, and you're the guy for it. So, well, <laughs> why that's shift? I I, I keep looking for somebody better qualified than I am. And uh, I, it, it's kind of like where there's a line of military recruits and everybody takes a step back and the one guy's left there like, oh, I guess it's me. Guess so it's um, th thank you. So I'm working on a book and film project with Diana Rogers. Uh, she really is is doing all of the film project. I help a little bit. In theory, I'm a co-producer, but like I, I – that is not my wheelhouse. I, I help where I can, but it's very minimal. Uh, we also have a book. Both of these, it's called Sacred Cow, and it's tackling the health, environmental, and ethical considerations of eating meat and making the case for, for better meat. And it's a, a massive project. Like when we turned in the initial manuscript, it was over 400 pages. And they were like, this is going to have to be about half that, that, that size approximately. But, yeah. you know, each one of these subjects really deserves a book in and of its own. And it, of its own. Typically, there have been books written on this. But part of the problem that we face right now is this topic of, of meat eating and climate change and sustainability. It becomes, becomes a game of what I call vegan whack-a-mole. So... Folks will raise a question around health. And so you you have a bunch of long, drawn-out discussions around health. And maybe you make a compelling case that meat isn't going to kill you and give you cancer and all this stuff. But then immediately they will shift gears to, well, it's going to destroy the planet. And there's a whole long, drawn-out process to, to unpack that. And that one is actually a pretty controversial topic these days because people have basically decided – 
that meat eating is analogous to destroying the environment, even though it's it, the environment existed for billions of years with plants and animals interacting in a dynamic fashion. Like there were more animals alive in the past before humanity got here than there are now, you know, and somehow life actually perpetuates life. Whereas what these folks are suggesting, like there've been really crazy, um, Discoveries where like shellfish, it's been discovered, produce massive amounts of methane. Now, shellfish are a really vital part of clearing waterways. They filter uh, uh, toxicants out of the water and they're a really great sign of the waterways being healthy. But when it was discovered that they produce a lot of methane, it was suggested that they should be eradicated on the seafloor to mitigate this stuff. And so this is just where, and, and for me, this, the, the implication there is obvious for other people, it, it, it may or may not be. And it's a lot to unpack that, but the basic idea is that natural systems are, are probably resilient and can last over time courses of thousands of years and be largely unchanged. And our current industrial food system is, is neither resilient nor something that could last indefinitely. It's dependent on massive amounts of fossil fuel inputs. It, it, uh, uh, denudes the soil, it destroys the microbiome in the soil, and on and on and on. But that, that the, the challenge is that it's kind of a PhD dissertation to unpack each one of these kind of subcategories. And there's very controversial stuff in there. I, I've been called a Holocaust denier because I suggested that um, grass properly pastured meat could actually play a favorable role in the climate change discussion. And what that got turned into, and this was from a person who had been a personal friend for 10 years, was acknowledged in the credits of my first New York Times bestselling book. So this was not some some random schmo on YouTube where you would expect it. This is someone that I've known, I've hung out with. And this, this person suggested that um, because I wanted to have a more nuanced discussion around this climate change topic and, and things like shellfish and things like, you, you know, the the notion that uh, properly applied animal husbandry could actually be a net carbon sink. Um, it was her opinion that I was probably also a, in addition to be a climate change denier, which that's not what I was suggesting. I'm suggesting that we might look at some other alternatives versus just planet of the vegans as a solution. And, and it was, it, she has observed that people who are climate change deniers are also Holocaust deniers. So I go from being like this kind of nutrition and health educator to trying to get in and talk about some nuance around our, our food systems. And there's some really, um, I would say dangerous tactics being employed to kind of shut people up and, and, uh, suppress the discussion around these topics. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I am just completely out in Looney Tuneville, but maybe it's good to have a discussion around that so that maybe we could, do you curse on this thing or yes, not, a little, a lot, a little bit, uh, you know, if I'm wrong, then maybe I can unfuck myself sufficiently to then articulate a more nuanced message or a more accurate message. But if I'm just hammered down and shut up, then I remain dumb and or I remain dumb and continue telling dumb things to other people. So like this, this ability to have a discussion around this stuff is really, really important. And it's far more dangerous to not have the discussion. But it is really in vogue currently to if somebody doesn't, you, you know, beat the same drum that you're beating, you like suppress them, beat them down, shut them up. There, there's some thinking that, um, you know, just just wrong thought should be like prosecutable and stuff like that. So it, 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 it's crazy stuff, but that's the battle that we're fighting right now. And one, of, one of my questions is how the fuck did we get here? You know, is it a, is it a generational shift in mentality? Is it a victimhood um, uh, promotion? Is it, you know, I, I, I often think like, how, how is it that we got so off base that we can't actually have a debate, a conversation about this. And I think, you know, to stay topical and current, like, you know, I think all of us were, were really, really looking forward to a sane conversation between James Wilkes and Chris Kresser on the Joe Rogan experience. We were really looking forward to it, to a, a reasonable scientific debate, a conversation, and it just wasn't. And so many key elements of the conversation between the Game Changers film and sort of, you know, 
sustainable, regenerative uh, farming techniques and, and nutrition uh, overall, like it didn't, it didn't happen. Can you, and I know that you have, and I know that you've been talking about it a lot, but can you weigh in on that a little bit? Like, first of all, how did we, how do you think that we get here? And maybe that's a philosophical, maybe that's a philosophical question. Um, how did we get here? And what were some of the things that you were really looking forward to hearing talked about on the Joe Rogan experience between James Wilkes and, uh, and Chris Kresser that we didn't hear? Yeah, yeah. So I'll try to unpack that more meta one. And this is a, a, an opinion piece. So I'm, I'm not presenting this as, as fact. Like there are some things that uh, I feel like are, are pretty quantifiable and defensible. And I'll, I'll delineate those if we get onto those topics. But this is purely an opinion piece. I could be out in, in left field. Maybe I'm just uh, uh, looking for confirmation bias to support my neuroses or whatever. So all those caveats aside. But so. Sam Harris, who's a, a famous neuroscientist, um, he observed that it, at some point in about the last eight to 10 years, there was a shift in the way that it, it, in particular in the U.S. that politics occurs and where before there was kind of an Im implicit understanding that there's a little give and little take and, and just about any topic that you would care to uh, discuss that, you know, say like welfare reform or something like that, like the more left leaning people would advocate for their side, the more right leaning people would advocate for their stuff. And there would typically be some degree of kind of meeting in the middle where both sides were not particularly stoked with the outcome. And that was probably a good thing. And it shifted to what he likened to our approach to uh, sports teams, where it's like, this is my team. That's your team. And it shifted. And this is um, uh, it's basically tribalism. And once you shift into tribalism, like it, it's very rare that you could get a group of, of white collar professionals in, enraged enough to get into a fist fight and like shiving each other and stuff like that. But a good soccer game. That is not at all surprising to see. And in fact, it, it, you know, a hockey game like that, that's kind of like part and parcel. And so somewhere along the line, we shifted from this understanding that there's a give and take in the political process to basically a team sport mentality, winner take all. And um, I, I think that in the U.S., again, opinion piece, but kind of the previous administration, not to say that the current administration is is any basket of roses, but previous administration used kind of this virtue signaling stuff as a little bit of a cudgel. It's like we're going to bludgeon people into the direction that we want to go. And and now, like President Obama is now like kind of, hey, we need to calm the fuck down on the the, the you know, the more liberal progressive side, because they're starting to eat their own young. Like the, it, it ends up being this kind of uh, virtue signaling Olympics where it's like, well, I'm marginalized. And it's like, fuck you. I'm way more marginalized than you are. And that makes you the oppressor. And it's this kind of knock on effect. But I think that they it was kind of like a weapon of mass destruction that they thought they could use in a targeted fashion. And you can't. It's like that mm. cat is kind of out of the bag. And in the background of that, this is, again, some somewhat speculative stuff, but I, I think it, it's reasonable um, when we look at teens, 20 year olds, 30 year olds. I'm an old fart. I'm almost 50. I'm going to be 48 this year. Uh, there's an interesting shift in that there's a ton of anxiety and there's a ton of, of uh, kind of mental health problems in these these folks. And there's some thought that it was. It's been a consequence of kind of this helicopter parenting deal where kids are never allowed to fail. Kids are never allowed to to develop aptitude on their own. Uh, there was, a, I believe, a Harvard Law School study where they, they surveyed these fourth year law students and they asked them, what do you think of the First Amendment? And they basically said it needs to be modified or scrapped because thought there are thoughts that are so onerous that they need to be suppressed and or, or uh, uh, you know, attacked by the state. And so there's this thought that and these are these are well-educated, thoughtful, uh, uh, you know, law students. And it's, it's interesting, about three years before that happened, Dan Carlin, who has one of the most popular podcasts on the planet, Hardcore History and, and his Common Sense podcast, he predicted that there would be this um, – 
turning away from freedom as a core value with this next generation. And they would opt wholesale for uh, what they see as being security. And I forget if it was Winston Churchill or who one of the historical figures were, but that, that we will sell our freedom for the for the guise of security. And so I think it's a couple of different things. Like there's been a real a kind of wacky cultural shift where where kids operate with a lot of anxiety and a lot of unknown and they don't really feel that empowered to be able to navigate their life. Um, they maybe don't have the best of social skills because it's been a lot of of this and and uh, social media is to community what twenties are to nutrition. Yeah, like it tastes good in the minute, but it, it just it leaves you no better over the long haul. So I, I think it's a lot of stuff like that. And then also, you know, some of the stuff that we've seen, some of the um, the social media outlets like Facebook, like they learned early on that if you figure out a way of pitting people against each other, there's more there's more response and that that actually sold more ads. And so there's a lot of different factors that have gone into this current scenario in which um, people are just kind of at each other's throats. And then there are a lot of people who hate the current president and like anything that looks not Donald Trump, then they are in. There's no analysis there. And then that just kind of causes other people on the other side to like hunker in and and like, well, if you don't like them, then I, I didn't, but now I do because I've been getting attacked all the time. Yeah. So it's this like kind of crazy downward spiral. And, uh, uh, so that's a big meta deal with that. And I don't know, it's probably, you, you should probably just like cut that segment out and like throw it away. <laughs> but, but the, the Wilkes Cresser deal, um, I, this is why I don't do debates. Uh, years ago, I, I, almost 10 years ago, NPR was going to sponsor a public debate in New York between myself and a couple of other kind of paleo diet folks. And then it was going to be John Mackey, CEO of Whole Foods, John McDougal, and then one other person. And the initial discussion was supposed to be just the the health implications of, of meat eating or not eating. And I said, we can't do that because what those guys are going to do is immediately shift the discussion to ethics and sustainability. So we have to touch on all these topics and we need to be able to present a case and then have those people cross-examine and then they present their case and then we cross-examine. And what what was interesting, I really, really thought that um, I, I thought I had John Mackey's neck in a noose, like it was like a trap because the the ethical thing in particular, he's a vegan, but yet he makes tons of money selling meat. Yeah. And so the only person there who is a complete cock face from an ethics perspective was him, you know, and it's like quit selling meat, which would be suicide for Whole Foods at large. And so clearly they're not going to do that. And like the 11th hour, those guys bailed on the discussion uh-huh. and um, Chris Master John and a couple other people ended up plugging in. I opted out at that point because I didn't like the um, the way that this thing was structured. But what Chris Masterjohn discovered then was that it wasn't a discussion around the scientific topics. They had someone well-skilled in debate techniques come in and sow seeds of doubt about your credibility and do these things like in boxing. It's great if you can get somebody to, to not be in their rhythm, to break their rhythm. And this is, this is what James Wilkes was doing with Chris. Whenever Chris would try to get an idea going, he would run over the top of him, interrupt him, fluster him, you know, just basically be a prick. It wasn't about actually letting the merits of the discussion play things out. It was, I'm going to be more aggressive than you and try to fluster you and, and, there you go. So I just, I don't do debates like that. Like Chris had some misgivings going into it. Like each one of these things he and I talked about, he's like, I don't know. One of these things is good, are, are going to end up blowing up in my face. And, and, uh, this last one was, was maybe that, that one to some degree, you know, because it, it's interesting. Wilkes never once actually made a case that meat is actually bad for you. You know, no, but no. He, he managed to sow doubt everywhere. I mean, even to the tune that, that Rogan, this thing lock stock and barrel you know and so yeah yeah I, I don't know if that really touched on everything you wanted to yeah. discuss with that but it, the this is just debates are theater 
And that's why I, I don't do debates. If, if the structure I have thrown out multiple times to these vegan folks, pick three topics that we're going to discuss. I present on it, you present on it, we cross-examine each other, and then a panel of people that we, we both can, can select eight, 10 people out of it, they cross-examine us on those topics. Then we move on to the next thing. And, and then that way it's very precise. Like if I say something that's bullshit, then they have an opportunity to sit there and like fact check, okay, Rob claimed this, and then they can use Dr. Google to pull some stuff up and it's like, and then in their cross-examination, it's like, well, actually Rob, the study you cited was inaccurate and, and then I can be held accountable with that, you know? And uh, that's the rules of engagement that I think are necessary to, to really move stuff like this forward. But people love theater, you know, and yeah. they, they love that like emotional, you know, draw from something like that. So that's, and also if, if when people routinely avoid something like that, then it's kind of like, okay, you're on super shaky ground and you want to keep this in a super open-ended fashion so that you've always got kind of a puncher's chance of making it work. It sounds to me like there is going to be some opportunity for you, for, for you to facilitate the right type of debate. I mean, I, I would assume that, that this type of discussion, cause that it, it has to be, we have to talk about it. We have to, we have to debate this. We have to have people from both side. Um, it doesn't necessarily need to be vegan versus carnivore, you know. Although it should, it would have been interesting to have Sean Baker in there with James Wilkes because it would have mm -hmm. been, it would have been a, it would have been a different conversation. It would have been, uh, would have been. Um, I think, I, I think Dr. Baker would have would have met more aggressively the bullshit that was coming out of James's mouth, but. I think, and I've already seen, you know, um, um, Dr. Paul Saladino is having conversations openly, sort of like being able to argue both sides. I've been, I've been solicited by, um, by some folks in the vegan community that, that want a platform to speak. And, and my gut reaction is, uh, I don't know if that's a good idea, but I think that an open conversation, more debate, more sort of cross-examination, maybe even in the format that you're suggesting should be set up and should be facilitated because that didn't cut it. That didn't satisfy anybody. Right. 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 Uh, there was a, it, it, uh, Gary Tobbs debated Alan Aragon and I am no Alan Aragon fan, but, um, they debated low. I forget what exactly it was basically low carb versus not low carb or something like that, or the merits of low carb. But this was the format that they used where they, they basically picked topics that they were going to present on. There was kind of a coin toss to see who went first. And then in the next round, the other person went first and it was good. It was good, productive stuff. And both of them managed to, um, catch the other one in, in some kind of shady bullshit. Mm -hmm. Like neither one of them was a hundred percent squeaky clean in the way that they, presented things, they presented things in a, a, a stilted way that with a, a little ability to pull out and then kind of fact check, you could come back in and be like, no, you weren't accurate in this. And so it, and it's kind of lost to, to time now, like nobody really remembers that or knows much about it, but it, it impressed me with the intellectual rigor there. And, and also it highlighted the fact that both of these guys who are smart and accomplished in their fields, both of them did shady shit trying to pr uh, push their own private agenda forward. And both of them were right in some very specific ways that the other one really wasn't fully cognizant of, which, which I think that's really valuable. Yeah. 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 Well, and, and you're, that's, yeah, it's good to be able to like bring that, bring those, those falsities forward and call them out and, and examine them. I think, the, I think the, the general theme here is that we have to have open discussions about it. We, we, we have to be able to, to, to make the case. The problem that I see, uh, which you sort of alluded to earlier, you know, in, in, in talking about how in the hell we're here, how did we get here? How did we get here to this place where people are just saying all animal products are bad? You shouldn't take, you shouldn't, you shouldn't consume them. You know the, the the element of wokeness, uh, I think, is a is a is a is a majorly underestimated factor here. And there's sort of a spiritual um, um, virtue signaling that that is problematic. But on that let, note, let, let yeah. me comment on yeah, that just really do. quick. So so uh, some of the risk assessment stuff that we've done, we did a. 
a two-year pilot study with the Reno Police and Fire Department years ago, and we found 40 people at high risk for type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease. Got them on kind of low-carb paleo diet, some kind of watered-down CrossFit, modified their sleep and exercise as best we could. But the pilot study saved the city of Reno $22 million with a 33-to-1 return on investment. And I've been working to scale this thing and kind of take it out to the masses and whatnot. Fast forward several years, and we had a reach out from the Chickasaw Nation. And they had arrived at largely the same problems, looking at the same solutions. So we did some really cool collaborative work with those folks. And I was in Oklahoma hanging out with them. And this was when one of, the, I, I forget the gal's name, I could pull up the, the tweet because I saved it, but she said, you can't be spiritual if you eat meat. And this thing went through my, my feed. And I pinged it, like I put it up on the, the, the overhead, I'm like, Hey, Chickasaw Nation, what do you think of this? And they yeah. looked at that and like there was a mixture of both laughter and also like, fuck her. You know, it's like so this white privileged vegan chick who lived in New York is going to tell a Native American tribe that they are cock blocked to spiritual access because they live off of traditional foods. And this is kind of one of the ironies here is this is like the ultimate cultural it's not even cultural appropriation it's cultural annihilation there's one way to do it and it's going it, it is suggested to supplant every other traditional food system on the planet and it's like i i i have some i have some convictions that like you you could probably goad me into a, a street fight over them or something like that if properly motivated but like i i I can't think of too many things that I'm so certain of being right that I would move people towards my way of view at sword point. And this is largely what, what this kind of vegan crowd is suggesting that like everybody who eats any type of animal products is fucked up and broken and they're addicted to meat and, and they just want to see the, the world burn down. And it's like, if you really believe that that's kind of the, the headspace that the rest of the world exists in, just from like a, a chess playing deal, like they are so divorced from reality, they're actually not going to be that effective at doing much of anything, you know, and it, it, there, there is some some blowback happening out of uh, some developed countries. Like there was a, a gal that went into kind of the backwoods of, of Brazil. Um, there was a great uh, Atlantic piece on this. And she convinced the school district to go vegan and they started selling like like soy based hot dogs and stuff like that. The kids wouldn't eat it. A lot of these kids are are really poor. And the one meal a day they get was at school. And then the meal was so terrible that they they were disinclined to eat it. And when you look at from like a neurological development, physical, cognitive development perspective, the access to animal products is a major distinguishing factor in kids that succeed versus failure to thrive. And it's one thing if you're like, a again, a wealthy vegan family that's got a functional medicine doctor and you're getting your gut microbiome checked and you're you're, you're on thorn nutraceuticals five, you know, five times a day to make sure everything's buttoned up. That's great. But for developing countries, access to animal protein and the nutrients in animal proteins is a a difference between if not life and death and success or failure because of cognitive development and physical development, and just general health status. But this is being put forward as the one singular solution for planetary food needs, which I find remarkable. Yeah. Well, I, the, the, just to, to plug it again, because I, I think that is, the, it is the film that we need to see sacred cow. When you go to sacred cow dot, dot info info yeah yeah um the, just the trailer alone really speaks to the clarity of 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 the conversation that's happening from from you know regenerative farming and um you know sort of going back to older style um animal husbandry and the importance mm -hmm. of of you know making that an important source of nutrition for people uh it, it's it's cool i i subscribed um after we're done with this i'm gonna donate um and donate to the post-production in the film thank you because um we need to be more involved in and in, in sane conscious 
thoughtful people who know that there's a solution that's not uh, monocropping, um, that know that that you that you should be eating meat and it's really important for your health, um, but are also thoughtful and don't want to be assholes should be standing up. Like it's it's time. It's time for for reasonable people to join into the conversation either with their pocketbook. Or like case in point, you know, this this podcast episode, this is kind of interesting. You know, after the Google Medic updates that trashed uh, natural health websites and um, alternative health and, and, and really screwed a lot of people, I mean, like really devastated in the, sort of an industry, um, where should we be going? What sort of resources should we be looking at for um, nutrition advice, um, for uh, alternative health modalities like where where do you suggest people go to get information on food and medicine that's not the major that's not the major search engine that everybody's been using uh, i don't i i honestly don't know i mean a a self-interested thing would be go check out the healthy rebellion you know when and, and uh, uh i i think that uh, we have some great community. We're doing some good work there. People seem to really value it and enjoy it. But, but uh, that's a shifty, self-interested position for me to say that. Well, of course, go sign up for my membership site. That will be fucking great, you know. And and I think that there's good value there. But the the heartbreaker about this story is that we had a situation in which the wisdom of the masses was delineating what the efficacious material was. Not 100%, you know, like flat earthing has has grown <laughs> exponentially and it, it so it's not it's not a 100% thing. You have some you have some some losers in in that thing too, but in general when people are able to get in and discuss things and hash things out and like here's a crazy fact. 90% of the information that humanity owns today has been generated in the last two years. And that's going to be our reality. In two more years, 90% of the information we, we, we get then will have been generated in the last two years. This is that Moore's Law thing and the, the exponentially increasing access to information. Now the challenge with that is there's so much information that the wisdom of how to sort through it can be tough. And I think that that's where some of the uh, the folks that really do the appeal to authority, they're, they're like, the only people that should be talking about health topics are doctors. And part of that is they they uh, they feel like this lack of gatekeepers on the front end could let in charlatans. And it does. But it also lets in innovation and all kinds of other interesting processes that generally move things in a favorable direction. Like when we are able to compare notes on things and kind of kind of look at outcomes, even though it's not a scientific study, we can really move some stuff forward in a remarkable way. So it, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, the, I, I don't know where to go to find that stuff. Like there are other search engines like DuckDuckGo. I, uh, these things have been growing really rapidly. Um, there are some social platforms like ThinkSpot where uh, Jordan Peterson and some other people are on there. Jocko Wilnick are on there. I was supposed to be one of the folks on there. But the uh, just for a variety of reasons, I decided to kind of do do my own gig. Um, I, I I don't know. I wish I had a better you know solution. Podcasts are cool because you can still at least it, the the one interesting thing at, at least in the Apple ecosystem is thus far, knock on wood, they haven't their main business imperative is to provide amazing products. So they haven't monetized our information and the way that they can sell other peripheral stuff to us. They just sell us their shit because it's good. And so, you know, like if you have a topic now that you're interested in uh, looking in like, uh, you know, the iTunes ecosystem for experts and, and then you can read reviews on a particular podcast. And I, I think that that may end up being a very valuable and also time effective way of of tracking down some information, but it, it, it really, um, I, it, it was interesting. I had a guy reach out to me from Google who was like, Hey, I don't work in that department, but I work in this department. Can you give me some information about kind of where your situation is? And it was interesting. Um, there's, there's been this case made that, um, Google 
is effectively like a pharmaceutical company now. And uh, they have all this collaboration with like GlaxoSmithKline and they went after the, the vaccine, low carb, like different things because it was potentially injurious to the bottom line. Kind of makes sense. It's also a little bit conspiracy theory. And this guy pinged me something though that was, was um, it, it kind of lifted the weight off of me in the one hand, but then felt like even a bigger <laughs> blow on the other, which was, he was like, I really don't think that this is them singling out like paleo or low carb or any of this stuff. I think what it is, is that they identified people who've been able to make a living on Google by generating material. And for, for 15 years, you know, there was this thing, if you generate a great material, then Google would reward you and people could find you. But if you weren't buying ads on Google, then they're like, fuck you, you're not going to make money here anymore. And we've seen this happen with Facebook. Also, we, we ran across a guy who had like 150,000 person swimming community and he teaches some sort of like, you know, dry land swimming and he, he, he provides programming and everything. He had like 150,000 person group in there. He made great money catering to those people. One morning he woke up and his group was gone. They had violated the terms of, of service. So I think that the ironic thing is this may have nothing to do with kind of the things that I've spun, progressive ideology and everything. Like maybe it is, maybe it's not. But it may just be that Google's like, yeah, we gave you a, a, a good run and now you've got you to pay to play. Oh. And that actually makes a lot more sense when have, you get right down to it. Yeah, you I, know? Have, I have not heard that. I have not heard that idea yet. You're right. Yeah. And, I mean, cause I gravitate more towards, you know, um, if they were being benevolent and it was about, uh, we want to, we want to suppress the hacks. We want to suppress the, we don't want to reward the people that, uh, the, we don't want to reward the fruitarians because, uh, because it's dangerous to people. Like there's one argument there. The other argument is the conspiracy argument, which I tend to gravitate towards because I, I think I, I, I don't know. That's just, that's just my predilection. They're just fun. Yeah, they are fun. They are fun. Uh, that, that, that if, um, if it doesn't, if it doesn't help their bottom line, if it doesn't help them sell stuff to the big boys, uh, from the big, if it doesn't help them sell stuff from the big boys and the big girls, uh, in commerce, then, then sure, green med info. You should suppress them because they're not, they're not, they're not towing the line. But to think that no, this is a pay-to-play issue. You've you've been you've been skating along for free for long enough, and now it's time to buy ads to support your online presence. Um, you know, much like you know the the, the theories about Yelp. You know, uh, mm-hmm. I, used, I mm-hmm. you know I used to own brick-and-mortar businesses, and um, and you know, and and you did too. And I'm sure that you got hit up by the Yelp ads people, like, hey, you should buy, you should buy, you should buy, you should be spending two thousand dollars a month on Yelp ads. And if you don't, oh, it just so happens that the first three reviews are three stars, even are though horrible, you're, right. even though you're right. a five yeah. star institution. Interesting. Interesting, man. Yeah. That's both. So, is it, so it, yeah, again, it's kind of like, because it, it was kind of daunting when that, that first report came up and there was the list of websites that had been dinged by this update and I was on them and I'm like, on the one hand, it's kind of gratifying that like, potentially Google and Facebook have taken a notice of my work and feel it significant enough to basically remove it from the internet. You know, like I had dozens, if not hundreds of pages that I've developed over, over the course of time that were, you know, either front page or, or second page return on, on Google and not a lot of them long tail stuff, like, but a few of them were some really big topics and and, uh, I think it both helped people a lot. And also it provided a potential revenue scene because people came to the website. And so to wake up one day and like your site traffic has decreased by 97% and then you, you find out potentially why, like, wow, that's, that's kind of a, that, that's a little kick to the Jimmy. But then, um, if it's just this thing where it's, it's kind of like, you know, you had the equivalent of, uh, a free phone book ad, for the last 10 years and, right. and, you know, now they're like, Hey, you, you, you got to pay up. But it, it, it's, it's not just that though. Like but it, w- part of what's frustrating is Google and these other players have, have used us and we've participated willingly, but they've learned everything that there is to know about us. And then to the degree that they do want to do some sort of kind of underhanded manipulation, 
they know everything about us. And then they can use that in ways to kind of uh, manipulate various outcomes. But it, it just kind of is what it is. You know, we all were, were participants in this stuff. So, well, yeah. and, 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 and there's no, there's no glory in being a martyr here. You know, there's no, there's it, for you to cry and, and fall on your sword. It doesn't help fucking anybody. And, right. and so to see you, whether you call it a pivot or an adjustment to change, you know, to, to, to close down your old podcast and launch, uh, the healthy rebellion radio, which I love, I love the branding. I love the name and the, Thank for, you. the format is really great. Can you get, I, I want to go, I want to, I want to highlight like, okay, well then what are we going to do? All right, cool. Let's, uh, let's, let's, let's switch it up. Let's, let's yeah. make some moves. Um, what, what made you want to switch to what made you want to switch and and can you tell people a little, uh, for those that have not followed you and made the switch um tell tell us a little bit about the format of the healthy rebellion radio yeah so it, it, my previous podcast was called the paleo solution and it had a, a 10-year run at various points it was number one on the itunes health you know thing so we we had a pretty good uh, run with that thing but the fact it had paleo in the name over the course of time, that's just become this really loaded topic. And I, I will always use the ancestral health model as kind of a an orienting light. But it's been probably two or three years that I, I've been like, man, I would really like to kind of change focus and also to broaden things out and talk about some stuff besides just protein, carbs, and fat. But it was when we um, when we thought about this idea of the healthy rebellion, we were actually at a business conference and there's an Albert Camus quote, which I'm going to butcher, but it's basically in a, a in a world that's so unfree, your only recourse is to become so absolutely free that your very existence is an act of rebellion. And so we we tweak that to health and being so healthy that your your existence is an act of rebellion. And that's where this healthy rebellion idea was really launched. And uh, my previous podcast had gone through different iterations. Initially, it was a a Q&A, like people would write in questions and either myself alone or with a co-host, we would kind of talk about that stuff. And then it shifted to a, an interview process like this. Um, and the interview process was cool on the one hand, but it also became a little bit onerous because it was like everybody writing a book. They were just kind of like, well, I'm getting on your podcast, right? And it's like, well, I don't know if I really like your book that much. You know, yeah, right. so there was, there was some, some, some challenges with that. And so when we, when we cracked open this healthy rebellion, uh, podcast, we, we had, my wife and I have been doing Q and A's for a while. People were really interested in that. And then Nikki had an idea of trying to do a live call in show, which we, we have done. We've done, We've recorded four of them. I think we've launched two of them. And it's it's really cool because I can actually go back and forth with people and dig deeper and get more information. And, and uh, it, it's been really cool. And then we are doing a little bit of expert interviews, but it's uh, like we had Will Harris from White Oak Pastures. We had Emily Fletcher from Ziva Meditation. So it's a little bit more kind of like hands-on, actionable type stuff. Like instead of it just being theory or another book or what have you, it's it's kind of a, a battery of subject matter experts that I feel like can offer something really good to our listeners. And so there's that that combination. It's a, it's a multiple you know thing. So uh, written questions, the call-in show, and then the expert interviews, and it it's gone really well. Like people seem to really dig it. And, um, in total, something that's interesting is managing the healthy rebellion. So this thing is basically a membership site that's hosted on this thing called mighty networks. And it's, it's kind of like if, um, medium, a really well developed blog and Facebook had a baby. <laughs> and so it's kind of the user interface of all of these things. So it, it, it's some of the nice user interface and network effects of a, a, a social media it, kind of situation. But there's also the archiving ability that would be nice about a blog and uh, uh, kind of the slick graphics and stuff like that that you would see with like a Medium article. And um so far, like uh, we've had a decent number of signups and, and very, very little attrition, like people have mainly stayed signed up. And it, this is an interesting thing because the main 
thing that I offer is information and information has become a commodity. Like it, uh, if you put keto ketogenic diet into Google, you get more than a million returns in less than a second in YouTube, which is the second largest search engine in the world. You get a half million returns in less than a second. So there's, there's no, um, shortage of information, but you know, again, the wisdom and like, what does this mean? What does it mean for you? That's where you, you do kind of potentially need some sort of a, a, uh, a coach or a community or what have you. And like, I belong to a couple of different jujitsu online courses, a couple of business related online courses. And so like, I have a modest house, I have a modest car, but I really reinvest in my, my education. So like I, I, I have a language coach and jujitsu coach and like, I'm trying to improve me and I find it more valuable to put assets into that stuff than I do in tangible things. I have enough of a car to get me from point A to point B. I have enough of a house to keep the rain and the snow off my head and living in Texas to keep the bulk of the scorpions out, although not all of them. And that's <laughs> it. And then beyond that, I, I really um, find investing in myself, investing in my family, really the, the the biggest value that I can have. And not everybody holds those values. They would rather get all the shit for free and then have some expectation that their life is going to improve somehow. But it's that that investment in yourself and that work that actually gets you to the next point. That is such that is such important wisdom. I mean that that's that's critical because we can't make good decisions for ourselves or our families unless we know things. We and and as we um, as the future of work changes, mm-hmm. we're going to need to know a lot of different things. You know, I'm I'm a I'm a life coach and performance coach and podcast host and and people invest in me to help them improve various aspects of their life and I have to invest in me so that I can keep helping them. Uh, hiring hiring a coach, being involved in communities where there's constant learning and support is 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 critical and 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 commerce is actually heading there too like to your point you know um, information and wisdom being commoditized and for and for you rob who continue to be i think uh, one of the one of the key people in nutrition on the planet um and obviously you're humble and modest but but as a key as a key person on the planet that when people want wisdom and information they should go to places where they know they're going to get the real deal, that they're going to get sane information, right? And the the real deal, in my opinion, is that you can have actionable processes to analyze if that information was valuable to you. So it's like, I want to lose weight. Okay, well, tell me about what your process has been in the past. Okay, you're probably more of an abstainer than a moderator. Like, we just need to keep the shitty food out of the house. And if you want something... Go out to eat, have a dessert, don't bring it home. You know, until we develop some techniques and then it's like, let's run this for two weeks and here are our quantifiable benchmarks for how we define success. Whether it's a change in scale weight or it's uh, uh, we're documenting our meals and and uh, 95% of them are on point versus off point. So then that way it's it's not – nebulous at all it's super fucking quantifiable and then and, and then if i shit the bed and can't provide value then people are like fuck him like he that, that guy's an asshole like he couldn't do anything and they will relate that to other people but it in general knock on wood but i i uh, i either can help folks or i know somebody who can and will and and uh, a good referral is oftentimes remembered better than like a good deed to somebody Mm. you'll remember when somebody was like oh god i really need a plumber like we 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 needed some some help with some pest control here when we first moved here because the house hadn't been lived in in a while and it was literally like scorpionville you know and uh until a friend of ours uh uh, found us like this kind of biodynamic uh uh, pest control gal and she came out and now it's at a, a a low boil for compared to what it was before but we would have never found her because she she's up in Austin. We're in New Brunfels. It's 45 minutes away. She's wanted to start doing some business down here. So it made a good case for her to, to come down. But the person that referred us that now, whenever I pop something pops in my head, I'm like, oh, wow, I'm going to ask that person again because we had a, a goodie, you know. And, and so even just being good at telling people I can't help you, but I think this person will. What I find is those folks come back 
and they come back and they come back and they maybe buy a book or they go to a seminar or whatever, you know, so just really being focused on providing value and, and, uh, uh, and, you know, even if I don't know exactly what's going on or they don't know exactly what's going on at a minimum, if we say, OK, if the assumptions are A, B and C and we do X, Y, Z, then the results are one, two, three. It, and there you go. And if it's something different than that, then we can get in and reshuffle and say, oh, wow, I made an assumption here. It was probably this. And then we can modify it. It's very honest. It's very transparent. And uh, it, it's really a, adaptable. And um and that is some of the the uh, sad thing. Not not ever. There are definitely some some folks that kind of uh, maybe profiteer from people's ignorance or the laziness. It's like you know weight loss in a pill or whatever. That stuff's never going to work. But I, I still I side on the ability for people to either find their truth or run headfirst into a brick wall on their own <laughs> and not have some kind of nanny state into the intervening but it, again to pull this back around it's it's almost liberating if if google's motivation in this was just money you know it's like the free ride's over for you guys like you need to pay to play then it, it almost is is more comfortable than the notion that they've decided to pick ideological winners and losers and kind of run with that yeah yeah, yeah i'm with you on that awesome so uh, I like to complete every episode with a question. Um, so, and and I just want to thank you again for your time. This has been so, so illuminating. Things I didn't think about. Getting your take on 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 the, the arguments that we've been talking about. It's just been really great. So cool. Um, so thank this, you. This is a fill in the blank question based on everything that you know. It doesn't have to be narrow. It can okay. Be kind of whatever. Um, and you can elaborate as much as you'd like. Please fill in the blank. Everyone would benefit from knowing blank. Everyone would benefit from knowing better sleep habits. So even though I'm kind of the food guy and talk about that a lot, I, I, uh, I think that better circadian allergy, getting out in the day when it's, when it's light and, and, uh, getting as much light on our person, even though it's, it's overcast today, it's much brighter outside than anything I could create inside. And that starts setting up our, our circadian rhythm, circadian biology, and that actually sets us up for effective sleep in the evening. And so a, a focus on quality sleep, going to bed a little earlier, uh, a good sleep hygiene, is the greatest return on investment of anything that I've seen. And uh, it, although you, you have to eat, so I was gonna make the case, it's like, oh, you have to sleep, so just make it better. Um, you have to eat, so ideally you make that better too. But I, I think the, the better sleep should be as easy to sell as sex. It, it, it's kind of like pizza. It's like, okay, it was shitty pizza, but it's still pizza, you know? And, <laughs> and similarly with sleep, like sleep is awesome, you know? And so uh, enjoy it, get the most out of it that you can because it makes you way more effective with the, the rest of your life. Awesome. Excellent. Rob Wolf, thank you so much for joining us today on the Optimal Performance Podcast. Thanks, man. Thank you. Take care. And that's that. Awesome, man. Thank